0: Good evening. Good evening, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to the Center for Strategic International Studies. I'm Andrew Schwartz. Um, I'm our Chief Communications Officer here at CSIS, and I'm also the host of a new podcast called The Impossible State. It's named after Victor's book, The Impossible State, which you can buy a few copies of. It's still extremely relevant. Um, and. Our new podcast, The Impossible State, talks about the weekly developments uh, with North Korea. And we, had, we launched one this morning with Sumi Terry. Um, each week I'm gonna be talking to Victor, Sue, uh, Mike Green, Chris Johnson, other CSIS experts. And since you guys are all interested in this subject, I thought you might wanna check it out on Apple Podcasts or on SoundCloud. Um, We're very fortunate to be able to do this forum here at CSIS. We thank TCU um, and the Schieffer College of Communication, and we also thank uh, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation for all of their support uh, over the years. This is a terrific forum. It's a very timely issue. And with that, I'd like to give it to our fantastic host, CSIS trustee and former host of Face the Nation, Bob Schieffer. Thank you.
1: Well, I tell you, we've got a real star here because uh, uh, Andrew tells me this is one of the largest crowds we've ever had, and we've been doing these things for about seven, eight years. So, Victor, uh, you ought to feel complimented here. Uh, The official title of this one is the Cancel Summit. Uh, (laughs) The subtitle is, We'll See What Happens. Our guest, of course, is CSIS's own Victor Cha, truly one of America's foremost experts on the Korean Peninsula. He was the uh, Asia director on the uh, National Security Council during the uh, Bush administration, deputy head of the delegation to the Six-Party Talks. He's a professor at Georgetown, the author of uh, five books, and is widely known throughout the uh, international and diplomatic community. Margaret Taleb is the uh, senior White House correspondent for Bloomberg News. She is the current president. (laughs) the most thankless job in the world of the White House Correspondents Association. Thanks, Bob. (laughs) You all read the news, don't you? (laughs) And after uh, serving as a reporter for, among others, the Los Angeles Times and McClatchy Newspapers, uh, she has won multiple awards for her reporting. I want to start out with a little personal note, uh, Victor. Uh, Last Monday, in this very room, uh, when CSIS hosted Henry Kissinger's 95th birthday, it uh, seemed from the talk among administration officials that something had changed. I had introduced my wife to what I, someone I will identify as a senior administration official, and uh, it was just party talk, but she said, well, is it going to happen? And to her surprise, the answer was, "Well, if I were a betting man, I would bet no." That was on Monday. Tuesday, the South Korean president came here. Uh, Wednesday, or when was it, Victor? Thursday. 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 They announced the, the, uh, that the summit had been canceled. Of course, Friday into the weekend, it was uncancelled or whatever. But. Uh, <laughs> I'm still not sure of that time, uh, that uh, timeline, but Victor, I'm just gonna start out by asking the same question to you that my wife asked to that senior official. Is it gonna happen? <laughs> um, well, well, I actually don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, think, uh, I certainly think if we compare, Bob, where we are today to where we were uh, last Monday, probably, uh, there's more of a chance of it happening. I mean, we actually see movement on the ground now. We have sort of three different dialogues that are taking place now with um, Joe Hagen's team in in uh, in North in Singapore. Uh, and Joe Hagen was actually in the White House when I worked yes, there, he was. And, and when when, uh, when your brother was in the government as well. And and so they're largely doing logistics, I think. And then you have um, Sung Kim, the diplomat uh philippines ambassador formerly uh we worked together on the six party talks leading a team in panmunjom um, and my guess is they're working primarily on joint statement type of stuff would be my guess and then and then i think the most important meeting is the one that's happening in new york with uh this high level north korean official uh who is uh either here or on his way or yes. in new york and yeah. meeting with secretary Pompeo. i think probably having dinner with secretary
1: Pompeo tonight, I mean, to me that's actually the most important meeting. So, why, why was it canceled, yeah, the first go round.
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it, you saw the letter that President Trump wrote, um, I, you know, as a former NSC staffer who used to draft these things, the first thing you notice when you read a letter like that is that that is not a letter written by professionals, right, <laughs> that is a letter. <laughs> That was a letter clearly dictated by the President, and it was it 's actually an astounding historical it 's an astounding document because it is on White, White House letterhead. It is in Times Roman twelve point, which is the only font that the president is, the is the only one who can use Times Roman twelve point you know in terms of um, uh, correspondence in the White House, but it 's written as though somebody just dictated it without all the polish of you know, deep state, whoever, you know, trying to make it look presidential. And so it was extraordinary. I mean, it's just an extraordinary document to look at. Um, and, uh, uh, and I think the main reason that it was canceled, and I'm, I'm just guessing here, because we're all guessing, maybe Margaret probably has the inside scoop on this, but you know, I feel like um, when you send the president 10,000 miles to Singapore, um, and you, you basically move the whole White House to Singapore, you have to be able to have enough planning, basic planning done in advance. The basic logistics of a summit is a million and one things. Um, <clears throat> and at least the papers reported that, you know, Joe Hagan and his team were in Singapore waiting to do this and the North Koreans didn't show up for three days. Uh, at which point, you know, I would have come back too and said, they're not here, they're not ready and we're just running out of time. And, and so I imagine that if anything, that was one of the factors that was pushing the president to recon, to reconsider whether to hold this thing on June 12th, but of course, after he said he was not going to hold it, then the North Koreans became responsive all of a sudden, and so you know we're back we're back to where we are now.
1: Well, it would have uh, no question it would have been embarrassing had the president actually gone there, right? Right. Yeah. and and they weren't there. Can yeah. you imagine? Oh, yeah, that would be embarrassing. So uh, I told what was interesting uh, last week. Dr. Hamry, uh, the president of CSIS put out a letter, uh, he does once a week, Is kind of his thoughts on the events of the week, and he said that he was actually relieved that the, su- uh, that the uh, summit was canceled because he said, in his mind, he did not believe at that point that the administration actually had an agenda.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think everybody was concerned that um, things were happening too quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just before coming down here, I had to ask, like, my, my folks in my office, could we check if anything's, because it's, it's like that. Something can happen you know, in 10 minutes all of a sudden and change things again. So I think a lot of people were concerned that things were moving too fast, and as I think everybody in this audience knows, this is not normally the way you do summits, right? right? Usually you have a long period of negotiation, and I'm looking out in the audience and I see lots of people who we're involved in such negotiations that are quite detailed, that can go on for months, at the, end, at the end of which you have the possibility of a leaders meeting to help seal the deal, push the last issue across the goal line, things like that. Um, and in this case, we're doing it completely the opposite way, which is a meeting between the leaders not, I think very little negotiated in advance, uh, and then presumably a, a process that will follow that. but. I think for that reason, however, that is a much more risky tack to take because there is always the possibility that the summit will fail. Uh, and if it does fail, then we're in a very bad place. Or that one or the other party might want results too badly. They want, may, might want them too much and then be willing to put too much on the table. And I think you know, because of both of these concerns, I think John was probably happy for about 24
1: hours that it was turned off. But then of course 24 hours later it was turned back on yeah. again. So Margaret, and, and I've asked normally the uh, format we follow is as I ask the questions of the, the other people on the panel, but uh, I want Margaret to also join in the uh, questioning today. Uh, so Margaret, uh, I will ask you a question first. What is the White House telling us that the President wants? Yeah.
3: They've been pretty careful in how they talk about this. I mean total denuclearization of North Korea is what they talk about, total denuclearization of the peninsula is what the North Koreans talk about, and I think fundamentally we still don't, and I'm interested in Vic's thoughts on this too, but to my ear, my untrained non-diplomatic, non-diplomatic <laughs> journalists ear, what I hear is still no fundamental meaning of the minds on what the boundaries and the definition of denuclearization are. Uh, does the U.S. is the U.S. saying that they would pull back any of its posture before North Korea did anything, or are they looking only at uh, those sort of moves back by North Korea? And is that an art starter for North Korea? Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, I, I think there. I think your. I mean, I don't think your ears are untrained. I think and your eyes are not untrained. I think you have hit the nail on the head. I mean, the biggest gap in all of this. Um, is, is how we define denuclearization and how the North Koreans define it. Uh, the way you've read about it in the papers is North Korea is in favor of denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Um, uh, that is a phrase that the North Korean regime has used for decades to refer to, it, it's sort of like saying, yes, we all believe at some point it, there should in the future be zero nuclear weapons in the world, right? I mean, Think of it in that spirit, except for North Korea, they don't care about the world, all they care about is the Korean peninsula. Right? Their whole world is the Korean peninsula. And so in that regard, someday in the future when there is no hostile US threat, hostile in their minds, which would mean no US forces on the peninsula, no security commitments to allies. No um,
3: protection of South Koreans No protection Japan. of South yeah. Korea
2: or Japan. Uh, that would then signify the end of U.S. hostile policy. And at that point, they might consider removal of their uh, nuclear capabilities. The U.S. definition, of course, is very different. Um, I think the, the, the phrasing that we would prefer, some of us, is what we used the last time we did a nuclear deal with North Korea where the North Koreans agreed to, quote, abandon all nuclear weapons and existing nuclear programs that's a much more definitive statement of denuclearization. Uh, and as we've seen in the various statements, either by the North Koreans or transmitted through the South Koreans, we have not yet heard language that is close to that, uh, that which the North Koreans agreed to in 2005 and 2007. So I think we still are a long way away. Um, and you know I think that's where meetings uh like the ones taking place in new york or even ultimately the meeting between the two leaders Mm -hmm. that's the only way that space is going to be closed it's not going to be closed sort of at the grunt level like myself or others it's going to require a so-called strategic decision
3: but in order for the meeting to happen um the threshold can't be the thing that no one's ever done in 30 years right and so like what's your guess that the threshold issues are? Is it a question of an agreement? There has to be some agreement that everyone's willing to reach in advance. Is it timing? Is it suspending testing for some period of time? Is it um, verifications? What is the most likely, the easiest kind of low-hanging fruit um, that, that gets everyone satisfied that the summit can go forward?
2: Well, you're, you're absolutely right. There, I mean, there is a clear Catch-22 here because you need the summit to close the space, but you don't want to have the summit unless some of the space is guaranteed to be, guaranteed to be closed in advance. Um, and and I, I don't think, given North Korea and their negotiating history, I don't think there's an easy way out of that Catch-22, and it's a decision that has to be made You know, by the president to decide whether I'm gonna go into this meeting with more uncertainty than I'd like. As you all know well, with summits, normally 99% or maybe actually 101% of a summit is scripted in advance. Uh, And in this case, with North Korea, you'll be lucky if 5%, 10% is scripted in advance. And so is the president of the United States gonna be comfortable walking into this situation? I would say that most U.S. presidents, perhaps with the exception of one, um, would not be comfortable walking into that situation.
1: You're
3: talking about the one who's the one now? Yes,
1: yes, there is one president that maybe, yeah. Dr. Chad, I mean, does anybody on the U.S. side really believe that the North Koreans are ready to just say, okay, we've got how many, how many weapons we think they have, 20, 60, something like that? Anywhere between 20 and 40? You
2: know,
1: does anybody really think that they're going to say, okay, just back the truck up here to the warehouse and, and we'll load up these weapons and it took us all this time to build them, but you know, we're ready to let you have them now. That, that's not gonna happen, is it? I,
2: you No, know, I don't think so. I mean, that's very hard to imagine that the North Koreans would do that. Um, but does the president think that's possible? You know, it's a great question. Um, he, may, he may have people around him that tell him, Mr. President, this is not possible, or we don't think it's possible. Um, <clears throat> but I think this president has great confidence in his own negotiating abilities. And uh, maybe does it, that
1: worry you, or does that uh, give you confidence? So. Sure, it worries
2: me a little. Uh, <laughs> I think somewhere in the back of his mind, he must understand that this is not an easy thing to do, but then it, this gets to, also gets to Margaret's question. so what is is there a win set there that is that might be politically acceptable for them to consider this a success, right? And so we're entirely in the realm of speculation here, but uh, you know I think one of the most important things on the radar screen for this administration must be long-range ballistic missiles, because um, this was the, the newest threat from North Korea that emerged during the first 12 months of the Trump presidency. Two lofted trajectory ICBM tests, which if tested at range, experts say could easily reach Guam, Hawaii, and maybe Uh, uh, good parts of the United States Um, that is the direct homeland security threat and so I would imagine that that would be something that they that we would want to see some progress on and that and that is undeniably important but in the end the most important thing I think is um, or the the most important first indicator of whether this is, go, this, is, this is something that anybody could live with, an agreement that would actually make us more secure, not less secure, would be um, whether the North Koreans commit to a full and verifiable declaration of all their capabilities. Because the last time this broke down, that's where it broke down. Uh, in 2007, 2008, it was, we were at the point where North Korea had to give a declaration. Uh, and they did what not
1: tell us exactly what
2: what does that mean so a declaration would be a full declaration of all their all their weapons um, uh, all of their fissile material all of their uh, so nuclear weapons fissile material ballistic missiles uh, basically everything right and and everything they, and, and also
1: have. tell us where it is
2: and tell and tell us because where it is so it can know. be verified so it yeah. can be verified yes and and that is i mean that's a lot i mean just on the yangby nuclear facility you know the one that you always see in the news, um, just there alone, and, th- and this is all unclassified information, there are over 300 buildings just in that area that, you know, that would all have to be declared and verified. So it, it's a, I mean, it is, it, 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 this is not a small feat, yeah. uh, but at the same time, if there were anything that would demonstrate that, we are, that there's something different today than in the past, that, that would be the thing.
3: would that be enough of a takeaway to declare the summit um, you know something that had accomplished something big
2: I mean I I think if there were um, um, if there were a a, a sort of a verifiable end to the ballistic long-range ballistic missile program and um, a full declaration that would be subject to full verification by international inspectors um, that would that would be Uh, definitively better than where we are today and uh, potentially where we've been in the past.
3: You know, when you say verification and ballistic missiles, my mind immediately goes to a different place where there was a different deal that the president just... So what parallels or lessons or threads do you see, or maybe you're not thinking about it in this context, to the Iran deal, Mm -hmm. to the Libya arrangement that uh, the National Security Advisor perhaps unwittingly, I don't know, made a reference to, uh, that caused so much consternation, um, uh, to some of the Cuba policy that uh, the Obama administration had relaxed and, and the, this president has sought to undo. When you look at some of the other uh, efforts, but I would say Cuba's even like a side issue, but particularly with Iran, when you look at Iran, do you see any parallels or lessons or ways that that would impact this set of negotiations coming up?
2: Well, uh, you know, I think, by um, walking away from the Iran deal, the administration actually put more pressure on itself for the North Korea deal, because <clears throat> essentially they were saying that what was achieved in Iran was not good enough. Right? And that was the way they f- certainly framed it to the public and to, towards the North Korea negotiation is that they are not looking for an Iran deal in the North Korea negotiation. They're looking for something that's much more comprehensive. And so that actually, I mean, while, whether you agree with it or not, it's a principle that they've stood on, but that puts tremendous pressure on the president himself to get something better than the Iran deal, when the history of the negotiation shows that's very difficult, that's very difficult to do. Um, I mean, we have put 30 years into this negotiation, and, and, I mean, it's entirely possible that over those 30 years, there are people who are doing it that are stupider than the current administration. Although, I mean, I do have a PhD, so, uh, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, I, but, you know, I think that they work very hard at this and the problem was not the way we negotiated, the problem is that the North Koreans don't want to give up these weapons.
3: So,
1: I mean. Uh, let me ask you this, what do you think the North Koreans expect to get from this? Yeah. Yeah, well,
2: I think they um, they have been preparing for this meeting for a long time. Uh, A meeting with the U.S. president as a nuclear weapon state, Uh, the handshake alone would be very important to them. Um, You know, they are a small country that's looking for respect in the international system. They are the North Koreans have demarched us many times where they've said, you know, you you have relations with every almost every country in the world except for like two or three. And we're one of those countries. And so I think they see that as very important to, uh, for their own pride, national pride. Um, <clears throat> but um, you know, what I think they do want some sort of peace agreement with the United States. Um, uh, but I think what sometimes we make the mistake of doing is we see them saying they want some sort of peace agreement and then we draw a direct relationship with the desire for opening and reform and giving up all their weapons. And, and no, I mean, I think they want a peace agreement with the United States because it validates their nuclear weapon status. Uh, it ensures that the US will not attack North Korea, because if you sign a peace agreement, presumably you're not gonna attack. And then third, I think the thing that people don't focus very much on is that um, if, if the United States agrees to peace with the North Koreans, that removes, in North Korean minds, a lot of obstacles that they see to North Korean access to international financial institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank for development assistance. About 15 years ago, the North Koreans kicked all the NGOs and humanitarian groups out of North Korea saying, we don't want your humanitarian aid anymore. We're really focused on development and development assistance now. And the United States and Japan have been the two countries that have really obstructed the ability, uh, I mean, there are other countries, but the United States and Japan are the primary actors in terms of access to um, uh, you know, the international financial institutions. And so I think that's part of the reason, why, would, that's would what they, they want.
1: Would they want something like uh, some sort of an armistice or to sign some sort of a treaty that the war is finally over? Yeah. And uh, Is that a good idea? Would we? consider doing that? Yeah, I, I
2: think the treaty, a treaty, uh, so as you all know, an armistice was signed in 1953, which is a ceasefire. So the yeah. Korean War officially has never ended, just a cessation of hostilities. A peace treaty is more complicated because you know, then there's a question of ratification. Um, uh, <laughs> but some sort of, I think what certainly the South Koreans and maybe the North Koreans and maybe the United States are looking more towards is some sort of political statement that the three countries intend to uh, step away from the hostilities and, and, and um, support a permanent peace regime on the, on the Korean Peninsula. And nobody's against peace. I mean, I think we all want peace and we all would prefer that to conflict. Um, but I guess the main concern is that if we walk into something like that, do we understand what the potential ramifications are? Does that then affect our troop presence in Korea? Does it affect our alliance, the credibility of our alliance commitments? Um, um, does this, is this actually something that enhances our security um, or does it not enhance our security? I mean, these are all the sorts of questions that need to be thought about going into a meeting like this uh, when the
1: president is going to be the negotiator. What, uh, what role has China played yeah. in all of this? And what does China want here? Um, So China has been much
2: more active in the last, really the last few weeks than they've been in quite some time. Uh, When the North Korean leader uh, came to power about six years ago, uh, the Chinese had virtually no interaction with him. Um, But after President Trump agreed to a summit meeting with the North Korean leader, uh, China has had two summits with the North Korean leader within a span of 40 days,
3: and it was that second one, wasn't it, that coincided with the president's dictated letter? Do you yeah. see how much of a correlation do you see, and did you see it in terms of North Korea adjusting their rhetoric or their asks, you know, from the U.S. as the turning point where they didn't show up for meetings and that kind of thing?
2: Yeah. So I, certainly, the, the the president himself framed it that way. Yeah. He thought that there was that North Korea's attitudes changed after the second meeting with the Chinese.
3: Because China had given him instructions. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's certainly the way, and, and, and that we were not informed of the second meeting. You know? So I think there was some suspicion there. You know, I think that, as, as with most countries, China was also uncomfortable with the pace, with the way things were moving so quickly. Um, they clearly have stakes in any deal that the United States or North Korea might negotiate, a peace agreement. The, the Chinese would not want to be cut out of something like that. Um, any discussion of, uh, security guarantees, you know, China would not want to be cut out of something like that. Um, you know, I think for the Chinese, they're always balancing because on the one hand, when there, are, n- there is no negotiation taking place and North Korea is doing bad things like yeah. missile tests, everybody blames China. They're like, why don't you do something? You have all the economic pressure. Um, and so the Chinese prefer negotiation because when negotiations start, then all the pressure's on the United States, right? You know, why don't you make Somebody a deal, fault, right? Right. someone, you know. Um, but the Chinese, I think, would prefer to have it go back to something like six party talks where it's hosted in Beijing. And as host, then China has the pen on document writing and things of that nature, which gives them more control over the, over the process. So, uh, and, and so I, you know, I think the Chinese are behaving as most other countries in the region are behaving in this whirlwind of diplomacy. They're trying to find their feet in all of this, and they're trying to consolidate their relationships with the key parties, that being the North Koreans and the Americans, um, and they don't wanna be cut out of anything.
1: I wanna go back, uh, you talked about uh, just, uh, just a minute ago, uh, what uh, the Russians, uh, I lost my train of thought there, <laughs> it happens. Uh, The Russians, we suddenly find out, are showing a lot of interest in this. And and what do they want out of this?
2: Um, So I think, I mean, in the end, Russia, I've always felt that Russia's uh, policies on the Korean Peninsula have been, um, they've been a combination of one long-term goal and in the short term, very self-serving. So the one long-term goal is in the end, they would like to see uh, energy and railway links that connect uh, the Korean Peninsula and uh, Northeast Asia up through uh, up through northern Korea and eventually to um, to Russia um, uh, for energy and gas uh, and transport pipe uh, lines um, that has always been sort of the long term goal but uh, but aside from that in the immediate term I think they 've always been very so sorry so when it 's in their interest to do something on the policy, they will do it. So to give you an example, um, when we were doing six-party talks, um, uh, the president I worked for, President Bush, did not want North Korea to have light water reactors for a variety of reasons as a substitute for North Korea's plutonium program. Um, And we had many long negotiations with the North Koreans where we said, you really don't want a light water reactor. First of all, you don't have the energy grid to support civilian nuclear energy. It's just a white elephant, right? I mean, you'd be much better off with conventional electricity, um, uh, winter weatherproofing of your wi- you know, windows. The, these things will increase this energy efficiency, sexy. Yeah. Not, not sexy at all, uh, energy efficiency much more. And we, I felt like we were at a point where they had turned a corner on this. And then we find out like that evening, the Russians did a press conference and they said, if the Americans don't wanna give them a light water reactor, we'll sell it to them, right? So it's things like that. Um, where they, they um not been, but they can also be unexpectedly helpful at times. And let me just, if, indulge, if you can indulge one other story. Um, again, when we were doing six party talks, the North Koreans wanted, and I, I talk about this in the book, um, the North Koreans wanted a security guarantee from um, the United States. And um, the language that was proposed is that the United States will not attack North Korea with nuclear or conventional weapons. Um, so this was all happening in Beijing. Um, we sent that back to Washington. I thought there's no way that it was gonna be accepted. It was accepted, the next to make a long story short, it was accepted the next day. And uh, to the surprise of everyone, the Chinese, the Russians, the South Koreans, the Japanese, at which point the Russians said, we'd like to call a recess <laughs> and have a bilateral meeting with the North Koreans. And, Everybody else in the room was like, why do you want to do that? Let's do this before the Americans change their minds, right? A, <laughs> Let's get this on paper before the Americans change their mind. To make a long story short, the Russians wanted a bilateral meeting, Anthony will remember this, because the, um, the, uh, the Russians wanted to tell the North Koreans that what is, and it's still in the joint statement today, the United States will not attack North Korea with n- nuclear conventional weapons. They wanted to tell the North Koreans that is a negative security assurance and that the Soviet Union could not get that from the United States throughout the Cold War. So they believed, the Russians believed, the, so- the Russians believed that the United States was serious this time, right? Isn't that it? So not to- sometimes they can be helpful too.
1: Isn't one of the hardest things going to be in, in reaching a meaningful agreement is how you divide up or how you determine how much they use nuclear power for civilian needs and how do you, how much can they use it for military? Yeah. I mean.
2: Yes, yes, and I think you know, if, if all of us could have our, um, our first choice, it would be that they really do not need civilian nuclear energy. Um, yes, of course, there are, uh, there are modes of civilian nuclear energy that are much more proliferation resistant than what they currently have now in terms of plutonium production facilities. Um, uh, but again, there are many ways to make North Korea, to, to bring energy to North Korea, most obviously conventional electricity pumped up from the South that make a lot more sense than a need for um, civilian nuclear energy. Um, nevertheless, you know, it would surprise me if the North Koreans did not continue to demand you know, the sort of top-of-the-line uh, civilian nuclear energy, although they are now apparently building their own
3: light-water reactors. There are two other factors that we haven't talked about, and I'm wondering whether you think either of them is really relevant in any way in terms of shaping um, the U.S.'s leverage or how President Trump thinks about the summit going into it. One is the three Americans who were held and just released by North Korea. They're back. Obviously, the president and, I guess, the vice president and other members of the administration have spent a lot of time talking to them when they immediately came back. And, per, and I don't know, you would know better than I, perhaps even below that level, maybe there's been a more formal sort of debrief. Is there anything that they learned during their relatively short time being held that would be the sort of thing that could help inform the U.S. in ways uh, that it doesn't know? And before you answer, my other question is, I had read somewhere uh, that even though, you know, overwhelmingly North Koreans are still very poor and don't have like... You know, three of these in every household. That there is more communication with the outside world than there used to be, and I'm yes. wondering if that is, like, you know, in the Arab Spring, that obviously mattered a lot. Um, if that is, create, affecting the stability situation in terms of uh, Kim's hold yeah. in, inside his country. Yeah.
2: So on the first question, so Margaret's referring to these three Americans who were taking. Um, detained by the North Koreans for, uh, in, in one case, uh, in, uh, sort of well over a year, right? Um, and they were returned, eventually returned. First thing I would say in this regard is I would direct you to our website and to read a piece that was written by Ambassador Bob King, who's in the audience here. Bob was uh, President Obama's um, special envoy for human rights abuses in North Korea, and he wrote a very good piece about the, these three Americans and about how it was handled in a way it was very different from the way these cases have been handled in the past. Um, and so that's the teaser, but you should, you should go read it. Um, I, do, you know, I think they were sort of certainly debriefed. It's not clear to me how much information they might have gathered. These people, when they're held in captivity, are basically kept in a room um, with very little uh, access to, uh, to the outside world. Uh, they, do, you know, they do labor. Um, and my understanding is that they, they didn't have much notice at all that they were being taken out of the country, except that at one point uh, they were transport, transferred from labor detail to being put in um, sort of uh, accommodations that were something like a hospital, basically a recuperative facility. Nicer. So nicer. Yeah. yeah. And so that might have been some sign. But aside from that, I'm, uh, it's not clear to me how much they could have gleaned from that. Um, uh, and the, um,
3: the technology question. Oh,
2: and the technology question. So yes, I mean one of the in, one of the interesting to me the one of the most interesting things about North Korea is how there are there is continuity at the political level and at the security level in terms of the threats and the closed political system. But at the at the societal level, North Korea is changing a great deal. Um, our research shows that there are now um, well over three hundred. Markets now in North Korea, officially sanctioned by the government, and scores more of unofficial markets, um, that the majority of North North Korean citizenry today get um, uh, 85 percent of their livelihood from the market, and 15 percent from the government. And the only reason that is extraordinary is because this is still a centrally planned state economy, uh, in the sense that. People are supposed to theoretically get all of their stuff from the government. And yet they are moving away from the government towards these markets to make their living. And, um, and once that happens, they become interested in anything that's new. So new movies, new music, you know, Korean pop songs, South Korean pop songs, these sorts of things. Anything that they can get their hands on. And that, that's the biggest change, I think.
1: You know, speaking of technology, and when we were talking about what, what? what does North Korea want? Obviously, they want these sanctions lifted in some way. Uh, How much of that could we expect here? Uh, I
2: I think it's gonna be very difficult initially, um, unless there are real uh, denuclearization steps that are taken by North Korea. Uh, These sanctions, and they're now, just to give you an example of scale, Um, Ten years ago when we started smart sanctions against North Korea, we had one UN Security Council resolution and one Treasury Department authority. Now we have the Trump administration has 10 UN Security Council resolutions to work with. and I think it's six Treasury Department authorities, something like that. And and those are all, for the most part, those are for nuclear proliferation. So you, you can't just remove these as a political carrot. I mean they have to be tied to some sort of serious effort at denuclearization. So I think it'll be very hard unless North Koreans really deliver. Um, the most likely place for sanctions relaxation would be to enlarge the humanitarian carve-out that exists now within this UN uh, san- sanctions regime you know, to allow for more food and other things to get into the, to the country. And then each individual country has their own bilateral sanctions against North Korea, and it's possible they could lift some sanctions there, but that would have to still, those actions would still have to be in compliance with the overarching UN Security Council, effort. So it, it's a very interwoven set of sanctions. Yeah,
1: now. let me also ask you, uh, the administration is doing all sorts of things on the trade front, especially with China. Do you see that tied in to these talks? Is there a connection here? Because there's some very, in some cases, very weird things going on in trade (laughs) policy. Especially this ZTE.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, of course, it's very hard to, you know, to decipher um, the trade policy. But I I would, I mean, so on ZTE in particular, I think. those sanctions were directly related to these violations with regard to Iran and North Korea.
1: And these were sanctions on China. Yes, That's
2: sanctions on, on the Chinese exactly. company in particular. Um, but I, I, I don't sense, others in the audience may feel differently. I don't sense that there is a conscious linking of, um, look, we'll, we'll um, go easier to China on trade if you help us more on North Korea. I don't really... I think that's the case in no small part because if you look at all of the entities that we are listing now uh, in terms of sanctioning, many of these are Chinese now. Uh, and, and the next set of sanctions they were gonna roll out that they pulled back had Russian and Chinese entities on them according to press reports. So if, if that's the case, then we are not discriminating in terms of who we are secondary sanctioning in terms of um, doing things with North Korea, including China. And, and I think that is a completely separate thing from uh, this whole question of reducing the trade deficit and this other, these other, trade, this other trade war we appear to be rolling into with China.
1: We want to go now to get some questions. But let me just go back uh, to one thing that you said about the pulling out of the Iran deal and how the president really put pressure on himself yeah. uh, when he pulled out of that deal, do you think that 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 had any or is going to have any impact on the North Koreans?
2: Um, so I, I may have a little bit of a different view than most, but I actually don't think it did you don 't i don't think it did because I think the North Koreans believe they are different i think I mean I know they believe they are different. They think they are a very unique case um, Iran does not have nuclear weapons. North Korea does have nuclear weapons. Iran doesn't have long-range ballistic missiles that can reach the United States. North Korea does. So I think they feel like they're a completely different case. Um, And so uh, personally, I don't think they took anything from the Iran deal, one way or the other. Very interesting. All
1: right, right here. We'll start right here on the front. Tell us who you are.
4: I'm a Peter Humphrey intel analyst and a former diplomat. Uh, Dr. Chai I view uh, absolutely zero chance of IAEA or uh, OPCW inspectors running around North Korea uninhibited. And there's nothing stopping the regime from moving 20% of its nuclear bombs and centrifuges into Yodok or Kuali number 25, the prison camps, and declaring them off limits, just like Saddam's presidential palaces. What's plan B when that happens?
2: Well, that's a good question. <laughs> um, so, on your, you know, on your first point, I, you know, I think this is the challenge of so-called CVID, right? Complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization. My colleague Sue Terry, who's in the audience here, she said, like, North Koreans have thousands of tunnels underground where they could hide all of this stuff, and, you know, you cannot denuclearize a country that is not proactively willing to denuclearize. It's very difficult to do it unless you completely occupy the country with 850,000 troops, right? It's very it's very difficult to do. So um, yes, I mean, I think as an ideal standard, CVID is what we should hope for. But um, in the end, I think what it comes down to and, and is the degree to which you think the, this problem of North Korea can be, in terms of their nuclear capabilities, can be 100% solved or to the extent to which you think it needs to be managed in terms of threat reduction and risk reduction, right? And, and in the latter category, I would point you to a report that Sig Hecker uh, out at Stanford just released where he offers a plan for risk reduction. Now, the problem with risk reduction is it can take 10 to 15 years.
3: Right, oh, sounds to, like the Iran deal.
2: Right, to, and it sounds like the previous deals we've done with North Korea. And, and there the politics comes in because this is an
1: administration that does not want to do things the same way as they've been done in the past. I'm glad you brought up that that report because it did underline how complicated this is. Yes, yes. That uh, when you talk about denuclearization, and, and he, this is the man, I'm sure many of you read this report, but he headed up our Los Alamos right. lab and has probably seen more of the North Korean uh, nuclear facilities yes. than any any other American. And he goes back over and over saying, This may take 15 years or even longer to completely denuclearize. All right, let's, this gentleman right here, here comes the microphone.
5: Thank you for coming, Dr. Chard. Mm -hmm. Uh, My name is Mitsuo Nakaya, uh, Reagan Foundations. Uh, According to nuclear experts, uh, as Bob mentioned, uh, when you talk about complete denuclearization, I'm sorry, Uh, it may take five to 10 years or even longer. So my question is, what kind of approach President Trump should take when they meet? Thank you. Um,
2: What kind of approach should he take? Well, I think he should be friendly. He should shake hands. I mean, again, on the, on the nuclear issue, you know, I think there will be many of his advisors will tell him you know, what are the challenges and what are the things that we need up front to show that this is a credible deal. Um, and I think that will be very sound advice. I mean, we know all these people, and I, I know them as well. I think they'll give him very sound advice. But when this president walks into the room, we all know he's gonna do what he wants to do, right? And so, um, We can try to define the wind set for him in advance based on expert knowledge and understanding experience, Um, but he will decide what he wants to do when he gets into the room. He was the one who decided he was gonna have a meeting with the North Korean leader. I cannot imagine that his National Security Advisor or Secretary of State said, this is a good thing to do right now when the South Korean National Security Advisor is in the Oval Office, yet he did it, right? So, um, um, so all I can say is that I think that he will get very good advice on what are the things that we need to see up front. Um, you know, putting aside things like let's just crate it all up and ship it out um, because that's not realistic. You know, in, in in within a period of like a week or two weeks, obviously not realistic. Um, but in the end, you know, he will define the wind set for himself.
1: We need to have some women because they're well represented here. Let's have. Yes, ma'am, right here.
4: Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Cha, my name is Rita Gerona-Adkins. I'm a journalist. I write for Asian Pacific Islanders in the United States. My question, sir, is what do you think will be the impact of this North Korea-United States conflict should hopefully it doesn't sort of gravitate towards a more military kind of direction but if it does and even if it doesn't really get to bloom into a war, what do you think, sir, is the impact of that dynamic uh, on the area of the Asian Pacific area which has been recognized as precisely there's a momentum for growth, for business after the Euro had sort of kind of slid down. What do you think will be the impact of this conflict? on the rest of the Asian Pacific area, so far as it's business and trade development uh, and uh, progress is concerned. So clearly if
2: we had a conflict or something approaching conflict on the Korean Peninsula, it would not be good for anybody in Asia. Um, It would be bad for every stock market in Asia. and the, you know, the, when I think about conflict on the Korean Peninsula, I, you know, this is war like we haven't seen in a generation. Um, it is, you know, I mean, the United States military has been fighting counterinsurgency now for the past right, three decades. Uh, the United States military has not fought a war like this you know, really since Korea, World War, or, two. Uh, World war II. Korea. Um, and the battle space or the so-called kill space is so concentrated, so small, it would be horrific um, and uh, and it would put at risk uh, you know, 250,000 Americans who live in Korea, 100,000 Americans who live in Japan, which is the size of a medium-sized U.S. city, right? um, not to mention millions of South Koreans and Japanese. Um, so it would be a conflict of the worst kind that you can imagine that would obviously have negative ripple effects uh, throughout the region and the world.
3: Bob, before, way over here. I'm sorry. Just before you take this, I just wanted to, quick. We didn't talk about Moon, and I'm just wondering, do you mm-hmm. think that he has been a force for good in fostering the lead up to this, or do you think that he's put used his leverage to detract from the U. S. posture in recent days? Good question. It's,
2: it's a great question. You know, and and you know, as is often the case in foreign policy, there's never a clear-cut answer one way or the other. I mean, I think on the one hand he uh, he took i mean he worked very hard to take us from a place in december of 2017 where we thought there was a good chance of conflict on the i mean you at the what you saw this right uh, conflict that uh, and uh, you know through the olympics and other things took us to where we are today and so he deserves a lot of credit for that but he is now in this rather unenviable position where he is trying to script Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, in terms of their summit meeting in Singapore. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, right, what could possibly go wrong? How how hard can that be, right? And then I think some people, you know, I think are concerned that he's trying too hard, right, in the sense that he is putting the best polish, the best finish he can on things he hears when he meets the North Korean leader and transmitting that to, to Trump, and so, you know one understands why he's doing that but that's not necessarily helpful because uh, you don't want these two leaders to meet in singapore and
1: then be surprised right. so, tell us about kim jong-un just give us a little picture of who he is and,
2: so he's 30 something um, <laughs> came to power uh in completely unexpected after his father suffered a massive stroke um was seen at the time to be ve- very inexperienced, and I, among others, predicted that he would not last, you know, more than a couple of years. Uh, but, you know, here we are five years after those predictions, and he's still, uh, he's still going strong. I think the thing that um, was most interesting about his summit meeting with the, the first summit meeting with the South Korean president, April 27th, which you all saw on TV, uh, was the way in which he completely changed within a day the mindset of 50 million South Koreans that sit on the opposite side of this border. Um, Just by virtue of the fact that he spoke and he spoke Korean without any weird accent or affectations all of a sudden made him seem human to everybody Um, and and so I think we're still trying to figure him out. I mean, he clearly is trying to accomplish something uh, on a grand scale in a meeting with the US president uh, at the same time, he has uh, killed both his uncle and his uh, his brother, um, and he, aside from Mike Pompeo, the only other American that we know he's met is Dennis Rodman. So, <laughs> you figure this
1: out. I can't. I can't figure this. <laughs> out. This man rower here has been holding his hand up.
5: Uh, yes, sir. Uh, my name is Cammy But I'm with the Pakistani Spectator. And my question is about Chinese role or manipulation uh, because China was able to use Pakistan against India and to some extent against U.S. as well. As you know, Bill Clinton was willing to give billion of dollars to Nawaz Shree for July 4th when there was a conflict between India and Pakistan. And I'm asking this question because if you see these two head of state's pictures, South and North Korea, he come across as a very insecure young kid. He is like asking South Korean head of state, save me from this crazy country who love to use con Asian. So I mean, he is already very scared. So what China is manipulating, I think, why doesn't... See, I'm asking this question because China is able to lower the stature of the White House, having directly deal with this guy. We Don't you think we should rather deal with China rather than North Korea, or this young kid? Thanks. <clears throat>
2: well, I certainly think it's important for the United States and China to have Frequent and very candid dialogue about the situation on the Korean Peninsula because if there's ever a chance that things go terribly wrong there, um, uh, I mean, the United States and China have to be able to talk to each other and have to be able to necessarily coordinate so that we don't all get into a war, right? Um, um, and so, yes, I think that's certainly important. Um, uh, but, you know, I think there's also an argument to be made that. Um, The North Korean regime also feels uncomfortable being completely under the thumb of China. Um, Going back now 10 years, the Chinese have cut all sorts of deals to extract minerals out of the northern part of the Korean Peninsula and basically treat North Korea like a poor province. Um, And uh, and some have argued that part of the reason that Kim Jong-un is looking at this reaching out with the United States is to try to offset complete domination uh, by China. These are all theories, of course, we don't know for certain. And yes, I mean, as President Trump said, everybody plays games. Everybody plays games in, in this region and everybody is balancing off of each other. So that's entirely possible that that might be one of the reasons why the North Koreans are doing this. And also one of the reasons why the Chinese sought two meetings within 40 days when they wouldn't meet with the leader for six years because they're playing their own game of trying to not get cut out and to keep, the, keep uh, the North Koreans on their side.
1: Well, I'm very sorry we're coming to the end here. Let me just ask the final question. Are you, how would you describe your feelings about this? Now, are you optimistic, uh, pessimistic, uh, skeptical? Uh, how would you sum up how you feel about what's going to happen if it happens?
2: Um, <clears throat> So I think, so um, you know, this is you know this is an issue that, uh, as a scholar, I've studied it for, you know, for 25 years. I've written two books on the topic, countless articles, and then I've also uh, participated in negotiations. So I do feel, in that sense, that we are coming upon a historic moment. I think June 12th will, if it happens, will be historic. Um, But there's historic good. And there's historic bad. And I'm just not sure <laughs> There's <laughs> which, which way come this not is going to sure. go. But it, it will be historic one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, Thank you all very much. <laughs>